Our passage this morning takes us into an evening scene, uh, a dinner party. Uh, the host regards his invited guests with some suspicion as we take our places at the table. Imagine yourself uh, dining at this table. Now, you'd have to do it in uh, true ancient fashion, none of this uh, Last Supper business where everyone's sitting there looking like a team photograph. This is, uh, uh, <clears throat> imagine a low table about the height of a coffee table or an ottoman or something like that. And you're lying on your side on a cushion with your feet kind of sticking away from the table. That's the situation that we find ourselves in. And for you and me, that's, that's kind of an odd way to eat, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I think it'd be bad for the digestion, but uh, that's the way they did it back then. So uh, I suppose it's just the way, you know, however you learn to eat, that's how your mother told you to eat, and that's the right way to do it. But uh, we're lying there around the table, and the host is regarding his guest with some suspicion and despises a particular uninvited person. Well, you see that uh, Phar- uh, the, this Pharisee has invited Jesus to dinner and a, a woman comes in to express her appreciation for Jesus and it's very enthusiastic as, uh, as we heard in the scripture reading. And Simon himself has a private disdain of the woman. He doesn't say a word about it, but he is thinking horrible things about the woman. And he's secretly critical of Jesus as well for allowing this display. And we can take our cues about reading this passage from Jesus himself because Jesus contrasts Simon the Pharisee and this uninvited guest who's a woman of questionable reputation. We never find out what her sins are. We do find that she's had many sins, but we don't know what precisely she is guilty or accused of. Uh, But if you look at verse 44, this is kind of of set the tone for our, uh, our passage Verse 44 says, Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. We're going to discover that there are two criteria for evaluating the people in this passage as to their relationship with Jesus. And also those criteria become the criteria by which we judge our own participation at the dinner. We're going to be sitting there as guests as we see this scene unfolding and and maybe even change places at the table. First of the criteria that we find in this passage is hospitality. And the second is discernment. Hospitality and discernment. So if we're thinking about that, as we read this passage, we can see the theological heart of this story is this. Devotion and worship of God are the measure of one's response to the hospitality 
of divine grace, which leads to discernment about people and kindness for them. Devotion and worship of God are the measure of one's response to the hospitality of divine grace, which leads to discernment about people and kindness for them. Now, that's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Of course, that's what I always come up with, a theological, uh, the theological heart of the passage. And it's always a mouthful because there's always a lot going on in any passage you read. But if we try to put this into practice, here's perhaps a way we can give this one legs. It's make your treatment of people, whether in private thoughts or public words, an act of devotion to the Lord and you will see them with a realistic perspective of God's grace. Make your treatment of people an act of devotion to the Lord, and you'll see them with the perspective of God's grace. So our first criterion as we approach the people in the passage is hospitality. Now, we'll start with Simon, of course. So we're going to talk about the, the, all three people. You know, there's three people here. There's Simon, and there's Jesus, and there's the woman And we're going to talk about each of these in turn in regard to their hospitality. And then we'll turn to discernment after that, talk about each of those three. And then we'll get a black eye at the end and uh, uh, we'll leave hopefully uh, changed by it. The scene is set at the house of a Pharisee in verse 36. He says, now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him and he... Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. That's what lying down means, you're reclining at the table. Now, of course, it's bad manners if you recline at the table uh, in our culture, but that's, that's the established mode uh, for doing it. Now, kids don't try to, to pull a fast one and say, well, that's how they did it in the Bible. So that's not the kind of reclining you're thinking of. Uh, but, you know, what's interesting is verse 36 is really the only mention of, of, of uh, Simon's hospitality. And actually, we don't even find out his name until verse 40. And I think this is Luke's way of showing that uh, the woman is more important in the story than Simon the Pharisee is. And she uh, goes unnamed. Uh, and I... I somehow think that this is also Luke's way of showing how humble this woman is. I, I really don't know because I, I, I can't interview Luke, so, so I can't tell for sure, but uh, I'm sure there's a line at the, uh, at the judgment seat of Christ for people like me who want to know all these answers to questions we can't have. You, know, you wait in this line while everyone else goes to the judgment seat, and then, and then when we're through, you can go, you know... Yeah, if a, if a New Testament scholar ever makes it to heaven, the, the, I, I bet all of the writers of the New Testament kind of roll their eyes and go, oh, not another one. <laughs> but still, okay, I can have my theories at any rate. So I think this is Luke's way of showing the woman is more important than, than Simon the Pharisee. Now, you and I know this instinctively, though. I mean, whenever we read the Gospels, we go, Pharisee, those are the bad guys. And anyone else is, well, you know, they're probably, you know, if they do something nice for Jesus, they're probably one of the good guys. But at any rate, uh, earlier in the chapter, if you just glance up to verse 15, 15 and 16 of this chapter, Jesus, is, uh, Jesus uh, raised a man who had died, a dead man, from, uh, from the dead. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> the report arises 
that there is a great prophet who, is, who has arrived on the scene in Israel. And there, the, the, Israel is abuzz with the, with the knowledge that there's a great prophet around. And I think that Simon probably heard these reports and he summoned Jesus to his house. And I've chosen that word carefully, summoned Jesus. It's kind of like, well, I'll condescend to you. I'd like to see who this popular person is. And you know, there's, there's a number of reasons why uh, Simon might have done this. Again, we, we don't have uh, explicit motive behind him, but perhaps one of his motives might have been to enhance his own reputation, to be seen in the company of a celebrity. Uh, <clears throat> uh, nobody does that these days. Um, or perhaps maybe he'd heard there's a prophet and he wanted to see for himself you know, whether this Jesus guy was a prophet or not. And he gets at the table and, of course, he thinks he has evidence that he's not. Um, maybe, maybe he was a, a tax accountant and uh, wanted to know whether Jesus could have a tax write-off. Uh, and he's decided, yes, he is because he's a non-prophet. <laughs> oh, well, no, that's not it. Oh. I'm sorry. Couldn't resist that one. But perhaps he's already looking for evidence against Jesus' reputation. You know, he's suspicious of Jesus already. And then when he sees Jesus' behavior, I think what he wants is some way to kind of trip Jesus up. You know, the Pharisees are, are into that sort of thing in the Gospels. And verse 36 is the only indication of any hospitality on Simon's part to Jesus. That he invited him to dinner. Now... We've talked about Simon's hospitality, as meager as it might be, or as minimal or as perfunctory, perhaps, as it might be. But now we look at the woman's hospitality to Jesus. And this is interesting because she's not even part of the party officially, and yet she shows more hospitality to Jesus than Simon does. Now, Luke covers this twice in the process of uh, telling us this story. The first time is in his narration, verses 37 and verse 38. He says, There was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. <clears throat> now Luke repeats the woman's actions later in verses 44 to 46. And those verses in which Jesus then narrates the story, giving his own uh, editorial uh, addition to the, just the bare facts, Jesus contrasts Simon the woman. And we think about the, the kind of trouble that, that the woman went to. Look at what it says. She learned that he was reclining at the table. She went out of her way to go to Jesus. She didn't just say, well, come to my place. Uh, uh, Simon really didn't go out of his way. Well, perhaps he had to, had to have his servants prepare a little bit more, but he didn't really go out of his way. She did. Look at verse 37 again. She took a, uh, an alabaster vial of perfume. Now, this isn't just the ordinary oil you'd use to, 
to anoint somebody's head or uh, or feet or or anything like that. This is perfume. This isn't just olive oil. It's perfume. Now we don't know what kind, but uh, an alabaster jar. That's pretty expensive. And so she's gone out of her way to find where Jesus is and to make preparation for his hospitality. And she's really very unconcerned about her own reputation. She goes in and uh, even though it's embarrassing and undignified in Simon's eyes, here she is ready to anoint Jesus' head with the perfume Uh, Her emotions overcome her. And she can't come all the way into the table, you see, for whatever reason, etiquette or perhaps uh, she's just unwilling to approach too close. And instead, her her eyes well up with tears and her tears start to fall on Jesus' feet. And she says, whoops, I better do something about my tears on his feet. Pulls her hair down, starts... Starts dealing with this. And there she is with access to Jesus' feet. What's she going to do? She starts kissing his feet and anointing him with perfume. You know, you you don't do that. (laughs) I mean, perfume is meant for anointing the head. And here she is putting it on his feet. So, I mean, that she would spend something so expensive on such an an unimportant and shameful part of the body is really actually even significant too. She is more interested in who Jesus is than who she is. And she performs these three courtesies for Jesus. Water for the feet, a kiss, actually multiple kisses for the feet, and anointing of the head, except that it's anointing of the feet. Do you see how above and beyond the call of duty, as we would say, this hospitality the woman is performing for Jesus is. Now, uh, don't make the mistake of thinking that Simon the Pharisee lacked hospitality altogether. Uh, We read this passage and, and we have this tendency to assume that the elements, the water and the kiss and the anointing of the head would have been normal, everyday courtesies that everyone would have expected. You know, oh yeah, you know, we read this passage, we think, oh, well, okay, certainly you go in, you, you get kissed, you get water for your feet, and you, you get oil for your head. But in fact, those courtesies would have been something reserved for someone who was a really important and special guest. Okay, so, so the average, you know, the average social function, people come in, you, you, uh, Maybe a slave might have washed your feet or something, but those aren't really expected or normal or obligatory elements of hospitality. And so the fact that Jesus is calling attention to the fact that Simon didn't go out of his way, and yet the woman has gone far and above even the red carpet treatment, as we might call it, uh, is significant. You think about what John the Baptist says about uh, washing Jesus' feet. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal to wash his feet. And what a surprise John 13 is as Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. That, you know, that's unheard of. 
And <laughs> Peter, of course, objects to it. And so Simon hasn't even honored Jesus as a celebrity, even. I mean, Simon is really kind of paltry in terms of his hospitality compared to the woman. So the irony is the woman, who is an uninvited guest, shows more hospitality to Jesus than the host. This status-conscious, religious Pharisee. Now, we've talked about Simon and his hospitality or bare minimal hospitality. We talked about the woman and her hospitality to Jesus, this exuberant um, uh, welcoming of who Jesus is. And so let's, th- so let's think about how Jesus displays hospitality here. He actually shows even more hospitality than the woman. Now, I've been saying hospitality all along here, but you really have to understand how hospitality and grace are related to each other. In the Greco-Roman world, in the ancient Near Eastern world, in the world that Jesus and the people here at the dinner table, remember, were there, uh, hospitality and grace are really intimately connected. And uh, the proper response to hospitality and to grace and to favor is thanksgiving. And when someone in the ancient world talks about being thankful, they aren't talking about just sending a thank you note. It's beyond just saying, hey, thanks, had a great time, which is, which is good. It's a, it's a good courtesy. But really, it meant in Jesus' day and in the ancient world altogether, it meant looking out for the interests of the one who had showed you grace, looking out for the interests of your patron, the one who extended grace to you the one who extended hospitality to you. Uh, And it meant your response would be to treat the person who had given you grace uh, in a way that was a reciprocation, if you will. Now, understand, of course, that in terms of the biblical view of this, this this isn't a question of paying back anything because the grace has already happened. Uh, and so the biblical view of grace is countercultural even to Jesus' day too. But you think about how important this is in the ancient world, far more important than it is to us. Let me read you just a little bit from the Roman philosopher and politician Seneca, who was born around the same time Jesus was. He wrote in his treatise on benefits, uh, he writes, there are There always will be homicides, tyrants, thieves, adulterers, ravishers, sacrilegious, traitors. Worse than all these is the ungrateful man. But grace and hospitality are the fabric of Greco-Roman society. And this is why Seneca thinks it's just terrible that someone would would be this way. And Luke's audience would have understood that connection. Hospitality offered and received meant a relationship in which the recipient was ready to do the will of his patron. A lack of thanksgiving meant a lack lack of proper response to grace or favor. 
And so being ungrateful in biblical language is reflected even by the Apostle Paul. Romans 1.21, it's, it's in the section of, the, of Paul's letter to the Romans in which he really nails everyone. Romans 1.18-32. Romans 1.21 says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. That is, people reject God's grace when they fail to recognize who God is. God is offering hospitality. Hey, I'll forgive your sins. Come to me in faith. You know, the the world just... If they say anything... Notice, again, I just want to make it very clear what I'm, what I'm not saying. The response does not earn the grace. The grace has already been given. And it's our responsibility to respond. But the response is expected. This is why un- being ungrateful is so heinous a crime. And this is why it makes you culpable before God. So it becomes even more interesting here that Jesus distributes grace to those who, like the woman, can't can't respond in kind. His grace and hospitality go beyond the ordinary because it's supernatural grace. Now, let's think about how that grace is expressed. It comes at the end of this passage. It's in verses 48 through 50. Then he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. <laughs> you can't do that unless you're God. Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? Who is this guy? And then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. <coughs> See, Jesus has the ultimate prerogative as God to forgive sins. And even his dinner guests see that implication, that Jesus is far more than a prophet. You know, when, when you read Old Testament texts like Leviticus 5 or others, I just picked Leviticus 5 because um, there's a lot of it going on there. In the Old Testament uh, when you had sinned, there was an appropriate offering for different categories of sin. And you brought your offering and the priest would, would administer the, the logistics of offering the offering and then he would declare that your sins have been forgiven. But it wasn't the priest offering forgiveness. It was the priest being, being there because somebody has to be there to represent God in this situation. So it wasn't as though the priest was forgiving the sins. The sacrifice is made. God is forgiving the sins. The priest is just saying, your sins have been forgiven. And yet, here is Jesus offering forgiveness to the woman with no hoops to jump through, no sacrifice, no, no ritual has happened. Jesus just turns to her and says, your sins are forgiven. And this is why we, the other guests at the table, are going, what? You can't do that. You can only say that if you're a priest and you're at the temple, right? Who is this man? See, Jesus is far more than a prophet. But his grace extends even farther. Uh, this is kind of like one of those infomercials. You know, but wait, there's more. <laughs> this is fantastic. I, I want you to see how above and beyond he has, he has gone here. 
He extends his grace even further. In addition to forgiveness, Jesus offers assurance. Notice what he says. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Isn't that great? Jesus, Jesus says this to you and me too. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And you know the emphasis here, uh, you know I'm a Greek professor so I can't get away from you know when the perfect tense comes up. The perfect tense, your, your, your faith has saved you, it means the emphasis is on the present result of a past action, right? She's already saved. You are right now saved. That's what the Apostle Paul says, same kind of verb form too, it's perfect tense. It's a uh, passive paraphrastic for anyone who's interested. Uh, in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you are saved. Your faith, that doesn't tell you how you got saved. It tells you that you are saved right now. I mean, by grace through faith, that's how you got saved. But the fact is, Paul is talking in Ephesians 2, 8, 9 about people who are already saved. Same kind of verb tense and forms used here. Not the paraphrastic, mind you, but the, uh, the perfect tense. So when Jesus says, your faith has saved you, he's emphasizing that she is now saved. She is saved at this moment. Or to use our terms today, this would be anachronistic, but she's already a Christian. Okay. Notice what Jesus said about her earlier. Verse 47. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, you know, you, you get to a verse like this, and this one always comes up in discussions of salvation and Soteriology, because the works, uh, the works salvation crowd brings this one up and says, "See, look, it says, her sins have been forgiven for she loved much." Okay, well now the word "for," of course, we could also translate this "because," and it has the same elasticity it does in English. It says, "Her sins have been forgiven because she loved much." Okay, now. That could mean a causal sense. Her sins have been forgiven and she caused the sins to be forgiven by loving much. And that's what the works-based salvation crowd will do with this, with this verse. So I want you to be prepared when someone brings this one up and says, see, look, you, know, you have to do something. They say, well, you know, that's... That's pretty clever, except that because can also have an evidentiary sense. Her sins have been forgiven, and the way we know this is, she loved much. See, she became aware of how much she had been forgiven, and she expressed her love to Jesus in this extraordinary way. And I can demonstrate to you from the context that that's the proper interpretation. If you think about uh, verse 42... The tail end of this parable, remember the, the parable that Jesus tells about the two debtors and one owes exponentially more, more than the other. They're both forgiven. And then he turns to Simon and he says, which one will love more? See, both of the debtors have already been forgiven. So the question is not about how they got forgiven, but which one is going to express his uh, love for the creditor who's forgiven his debt more? Certainly the one who's been forgiven more, right? And so 
Forgiveness is already an accomplished fact for the two people. So, when we read this passage, we should be saying, her sins have been forgiven, and we know this because she showed her love. See, she has been forgiven much, and I know that because she loved much. Of course, that puts Simon in the corner. We'll talk about that in a little while. So the woman's actions are not the cause, but the evidence of her forgiveness. Now here's the amazing thing, is that this woman had already found forgiveness in Jesus Christ's message and was present at the dinner to express her thanksgiving. Uninvited by Simon, but welcomed by Jesus. So our first criterion in evaluating ourselves as we're lying on the cushion next to the dinner table is where do we stand in this hospitality? Next, we turn to discernment. That's our second. I don't have three points, and there's no poem either, so you're, you're okay. Discernment, if you just put it in a nutshell, is the ability to see circumstances and people in the context of reality and the capacity for choosing the right response. Another way you could say it is spiritual insight. And, of course, the the ready-made metaphor for this that the Bible often uses is physical sight and physical blindness. We talk about people who are blind or they're blind spiritually, and some people who are blind physically who can see just fine spiritually. Uh, and so physical sight and physical blindness are metaphors for uh, being able to see correctly. And Simon is blind. But verse 44, we take our cue for the discernment criterion from verse 44. He said to the woman, do you see this woman? So we look at Jesus' discernment here. And we could say that there's more to sight than meets the eye. Um, you know, Luke's really interested in noting when Jesus looks at someone. In fact, there are places in, uh, in Luke's gospel, of all the four gospels where Luke alone records Jesus' body language, a, a physical, uh, an eye contact moment. Uh, you think about Luke 19.5, Zacchaeus, the diminutive tax collector from Jericho is up a tree and Jesus looks at him with this spiritual insight to see his need. Oh, well, you're in need of salvation. After all, he works for the tax people. Um, no, we all are. We're all tax collectors and sinners uh, as far as the Bible is concerned. But Luke 20, verses 9 through 19, uh, Jesus tells the parable of the wicked uh, vineyard workers who... Who, uh, who eventually killed the vineyard owner's son. And it's the audience is standing there. Jesus looks at them with this penetrating look. And, and only Luke records that of all the four Gospels, emphasizing Jesus' authority to interpret the Scripture, which he uh, then brings out on them. Really interesting, too, is Luke twenty-two sixty-one, 61, where at the trial scene... Peter denies the Lord for the third time and then Jesus looks at him. Wouldn't that have been a a hard glance to take? Uh, 
And so Jesus is asking Simon to look at this woman. And he's inviting him. He's giving him the chance to have a spiritual insight into what's going on here. And if Simon can at least begin to look at the woman the way Jesus looks at the woman, he has a chance. So Jesus' discernment is is, uh, far and above beyond what anyone else in the situation does. You think too about Simon has this thought, well, gee, this guy doesn't, doesn't know what's going on. This guy, if he were a prophet, he would know. And, and Jesus, it says, verse 40, it says, He answered. It's as, though, it's as though Simon had spoken those words out loud, but, you know, he hadn't said a word. And Jesus answers him. So, you know, Simon does really far worse on the discernment score, score than even he does on the hospitality one. First of all, Jesus thinks he knows who, uh, who Jesus is. The Pharisee who had invited him saw this, verse 39, and said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. You can just hear the ire rising in his mental voice. And Simon has failed to respond to Jesus' hospitality, which leads to his failure to understand who Jesus is. He fails to worship Jesus. And at the same time, he fails to understand who the woman is. This is why unbelievers can't understand what we're doing here. So, but here how, here's how we see how worship and discernment go together. Someone who worships God learns how to respond to God's grace and how to respond to others around them. Simon thinks that his own conduct is dignified and honorable. The irony is, Simon has no clue. Simon is dishonoring both Jesus and the woman, and he's blind to his blindness. So he responds defensively. Verse 42, which one of these will love more? Simon answered and said, well, I suppose the one who he forgave more. (laughs) See, he's been caught by the parable. He knows he's got his... uh, uh, Well, how can you say your pants... Well, if you're wearing a a robe, you can't be caught with your pants down, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Okay, so Simon realizes he's been trapped by the parable and he, said, he wants a way to wiggle out of this. Well, I suppose. But I, I really don't know where you're headed with this. Sure, okay, yeah. It, see, the I suppose shows you his reluctance to admit who Jesus is. He's, he knows. Logically speaking, there's no way out of this one, but he, uh, it's not a question of, of Simon's intelligence. It's a question of his will. The woman, on the other hand, on the, on the issue of discernment, the woman has seen Jesus for who he is and is evidenced in her response, uh, her response to his gracious hospitality. She worships Jesus. She displays the highest honor to Jesus. She thinks nothing of Simon's religious sensibilities and false piety and, ex- and expresses her worship and devotion to Jesus. She ignores everyone else and just focuses on Jesus. You ready for the black eye? Jesus challenges Simon's arrogance. And to really appreciate this passage, we need to put ourselves in Simon's place. So move up the table and take your 
place at the host position. I know our tendency is when we read stories like this, we'd identify with the woman because after all, we show nothing but love and devotion for Jesus. <laughs> and it really is rather comical to see how Jesus handles Simon. Simon is there thinking what a bad situation this is. A sinful woman is touching Jesus and he thinks this is evidence of his well, non-profit status, like I said earlier. And Jesus knows Simon's thoughts. And, you know, Luke doesn't hit you over the head with it. Well, Jesus knew exactly what he was thinking kind of thing. He's, he's more subtle than that. It just says, verse 40, Jesus answered him. Simon, I have something to say to you. <laughs> oh, boy, when Jesus says, I have something to say to you, just kind of hang on to your toga. Uh, See, Jesus knows exactly what Simon is thinking and rather than condemn him for being critical of the woman, he draws Simon into this comparison. You know what Simon's problem is? It's my problem too. It's your pro- I'm, I'm sorry to say it's your problem. But, of course, you'll be offended when I tell you what your problem is and this will just display what the problem really is. The problem is arrogance, right? Okay, so... You could say, oh, I'm mildly offended. Did he just say I was arrogant? <laughs> yes, I did. I said I was arrogant too. And I'm proud of it. <laughs> but you know, I, I'm having fun with my own arrogance. But arrogance is particularly dangerous when we assume we can see the truth. And yet we're caught up in the externals, the out, outward. Uh, we're caught up in the appearances of things. You know, Simon really has no clue what the facts are. He just sees the woman and makes these assumptions. and <laughs> So, are you at this table to bestow a favor on Jesus? Is there a sense in your mind that God is just a little bit more excited about having you on His team than having someone else? Or do you think that God had to exercise a bit more grace to save someone else? other than you? It's convicting, isn't it? Well, we're almost done. See, the amount of forgiveness in the parable is really not the issue. The point is, both debtors are forgiven. Simon assumes that the woman needs a lot more forgiveness. He's really clueless about his own need for forgiveness as well. And it's plain from how Simon treated Jesus, he thinks he... He's beyond what forgiveness Jesus can give. But really, Simon and the woman are in the same boat, aren't they? Here's this religious, upright, ostensibly moral person. And here's this woman who is ostensibly immoral, not upright. See, Simon needs to realize what the woman already knows. So, this passage, as we try to live it out, tells us, make your treatment of people, whether in private thoughts or in public words, an act of devotion to the Lord, and you will see them with the realistic perspective of God's grace.